Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 9th of November 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're also joined by Alex Thompson and uh, Debbie Evans, our nursing correspondents, just in time delivery. Yeah, let's just uh, get straight on with, well, the wonderful Jens Stoltenberg is in Britain today and everybody should be extremely excited about that. Uh, if we can get him on screen. Uh, and uh, here he is with Ben Wallace this morning. Uh, he's meeting uh, Rishi Sunak this afternoon. Rishi, of course, busy in the House of Commons with Prime Minister's questions. So uh, he was with Ben this morning. Uh, and uh, well, the first line on the uh, government press release says, Jens Stoltenberg will be the first international leader the Prime Minister has hosted at 10 Downing Street since he took office last month. Um, so again, the UK government reiterating the notion that NATO has somehow, somehow got borders and somehow got a a leader and so on. There you go. Uh, so they're going to discuss the, the war in Ukraine, of course. And in parallel with this, Rishi has decided to make some announcements. So here he is. NATO is the cornerstone of our security and the security of our allies. As the war in Ukraine continues to rage, we must not take peace at home for granted. So whatever's going on in Ukraine, uh, peace at home shouldn't be taken for granted either. Uh, and he goes on to say, uh, I'm determined the UK will be the bedrock for NATO for generations to come, but in order to face the challenges we've faced, we must evolve as an alliance to meet and remain ahead of the threats from our adversaries. Uh, so he decided that uh, he was going to announce uh, more uh, winter packs for Ukraine. So just in time for the winter, Brian, they're going to provide 12,000 uh, kits uh, along with 150 special tents, which can deal with plummeting uh, plummeting temperatures. Um, so there we go. The kits contain a cold weather sleeping bag, a bivy bag and a roll mat. Uh, and uh, uh, they're also going to provide 25,000 sets of extreme cold weather clothing by mid-December, which is going to include an insulated jacket, trousers and extra warm boots, gloves and socks. Are you impressed? Uh, well, no, I'm not, not impressed, Mike, because the amount of equipment that's being sent isn't enough to do anything for the Ukrainian forces, whether it's missile systems or tanks or other uh, or ammunition and so warm clothing is the same this is not enough to do any sub make any substantial difference to the ukrainian forces and there was a part of the uh, image you had on screen was a uh, another nine thousand british trained troops going to ukraine uh, well of course at the rate of losses that uh, most people assume at the moment uh, those men are going to last a month one month uh, indeed. Now, yesterday, Ben Walsh was busy as well. He was meeting, uh, here he is on screen, uh, meeting the Estonian Minister of Defence. Uh, and so the UK has decided to periodically deploy helicopters to Estonia as part of the enhanced uh, cooperation between the two nations as part of the uh, the forward, uh, the, the rapid response uh, forward Rapid deployment. deployment. Yes, thank you. I couldn't think of the word. Uh, these uh, will be augmented. The, the normal uh, forward presence will be augmented with periodic deployments of additional capabilities, including Apache and Chinook helicopters. So that's all very exciting. But the point is uh, more pressure on the uh, Russian border. Well, it's keep the war going. The aim is to keep the war in Ukraine going until they can really have a go at regime change. And there's now some suggestion of setting up a, a Russian government in exile. We've got the American forces setting up a new headquarters in Germany in order to better control the war in Ukraine. This is all about keeping the war going. Did you mean a Ukrainian government in exile? 
No, I meant Russian government in exile. How does that work? Well, because your objective is regime change in Russia, so you set up a government in exile to help the process along. I see. Righty-ho. Uh, but in the meantime, Alex, uh, Richard Kemp, uh, a, a, a well, regular tweet, Twitter. Uh, Twitter. Yes, is... Uh, pushing for fighter jets to be sent, British fighter jets to be sent actually to the operational uh, scene in Ukraine. So he is saying, Mike, and uh, Brian will quickly correct me, but I think that's an F-16 looking at the hood there from stock photos. So we don't have any of those to give anyway, but that just uh, really prompts the question, what kind of uh, airframes would we be giving? Uh, would, would they be British pilots in them? Would there be British pilots training the pilots either in Britain or in Poland? Uh, all a bit of a mess. We know that Zeshov in southeastern Poland is both an air and land base of uh, continual restocking, resupply of the Ukrainians. It throws it up into doubt, really, how embroiled we're going to get. The next Eastern Approaches podcast, which will go up on the homepage and which is already available on UK Column's SoundCloud channel, is an interview I did with Andrew White, an Englishman who runs one of the sections of the Estonian public broadcaster ERR, it's largely about media freedom in that country, but we do get into the question of British military aid towards the end. Also, the recent uh, leak, which I translated and published from a German source of the German federal attempts to indoctrinate children using soldiers in the classroom, made mention of a Russian government in exile being planned. And indeed, should the war fortunes uh, reverse, as they now seem to be, uh, and should the Ukrainian government have to decamp from uh, Kiev or even from Lviv into Poland, that has been thought of as well. Apparently, the Russian government in exile would be in Riga, Latvia, where there's a lot of Russian speakers, uh, but the, the Ukrainian government in exile would be housed by the Poles. Uh, well, you were right in F-16, Alex, and I'll just, <clears throat> I'm just astonished at the, I think, the ignorance of Richard Kemp in this to suggest that we're going to provide uh, aircraft which are going to change the situation. Russia's already established air superiority. We're not going to be giving the Ukrainians these type of high-spec aircraft. And if we did, the training is going to take years. So I'm just going to say utter nonsense from uh, Richard Kemp. Let's come back to the reality on the ground. And I'm going to recap on a little segment from Monday, which I wasn't able to cover properly because unfortunately I hadn't queued up the video for our, our audience, but let's have a look at it today. Uh, what we were describing was the fact that uh, the situation on the front is now that the Ukrainians are attacking repeatedly with relatively small forces. And as a result, they are back suffering very high losses because the Russians are reinforced and consolidated. Uh, but it's very clear of the suffering of the soldiers on the Ukrainian side. And I want to play this little uh, video footage from Defence Politics Asia uh, so that we can see what I missed uh, from the news on Monday. So let's uh, play the clip. It's Asia and I just saw some a video on the social media uh, that is actually from the Ukrainian side where, where there is a Ukrainian soldier within uh, this Voleda region and it's very insightful. Let's watch. Кругова оборона, оборона, с двух сторон пидорасы. 
4, блядь, бойца нахуй. 5, 5. 5 верни. Вчера вот балы. Элиту России крышили вчера. И сегодня. И сегодня. Стоим до конца. У меня еще есть, блядь, 2000 патрон, блядь. Look at his expression. Дивиться украинцы это видео и помните, кто тут стоит. Как мы стоим? He looks like he's he wants to cry to me. He looks like he wants to cry. He's holding back. Сегодня перше листопада. Я всех дуже люблю вас. And somehow you see this is it seems like a last word kind of video. So he worries that he will be forgotten. Там наши пацаны відрізані, а там пидорасы уже ебашать из всех свалив. Только что прилетели по нас грады. АГС. Пехота наступает. Целый день, два дня подряд. Мы в таком минусе находимся. Коло Егоровки, если вы знаете. So we want to pause the video. So you, you can see that uh, in the video he said that uh, in the translation he said that he's at Yehorivka. And uh, he, he 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 suggests that you no know, people should know where it is and he said that Pelivka has been taken so if you look at the the information that uh, we had uh, uh we have already reported there was fighting uh in this region where the russians launched a major assault uh uh at the region and yehorivka is actually south of Pelivka. it's actually here so this soldier here he is actually you no know, sitting and or entrench himself within this region and uh, my suspect is that he's actually within this forested uh within one of this forested uh region and he said that um Pelivka has been taken so let's watch further you know see what he says you see he wants to cry He's holding back. See, that's the final words. It's, it's his last words. See the tears in his eyes? Yeah, that's the video. So an immensely poignant video, but this is the reality of the war. Ukrainians in uh, dispersed formations. He's in the tree line at the edge of a field. He's surrounded. He believes clearly that he is going to die. And uh, what have we got Ben Wallace and team doing uh, at this very moment, but attempting to pump more so-called trained troops in who are going to end up in the very same situation. So as we said on Monday, um, very brave Ukrainian troops, but of course they have no idea that they're really being used for this proxy war for the US, UK, NATO and the EU. How are they going to die? Well, probably if they're lucky, they're going to be shot and die quickly. Uh, but the other thing which we showed, and I'll just let this clip run and I'll talk over it. On Monday, we showed this clip and I identified this attack as white phosphorus. What you will actually see is these um, uh, 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 glares in the sky, which increase as they fall. 
and uh, the uh, Ukrainian soldiers identify this as phosphorus. Uh, but somebody's uh, emailed the UK column to challenge us on this, and I'm happy to accept uh, the challenge. But of course, the reality is that uh, soldiers on both sides are dying horrific of deaths as a result of the uh, desire for war by the West. So you see, as this gets lower, um, this raining fire is extremely dangerous. And you can tell that these men are very disturbed by what they're watching. Well, the email that came in uh, from uh, Jasmine said at the 27.20 mark of the above episode, that's Monday's news, you claim what you will witness here is clearly the use of phosphorus by the Russians. What evidence do you have to support this statement apart from a Ukrainian soldier being filmed making the same claim? To my knowledge, this incendiary weapon is the Russian ML5, the incendiary element from the N sorry, the 9N510 warhead of the 120mm Grad rocket system. The ML5 uses a thermite mixture, not phosphorus. Now, I, I've done a little bit of investigation as a result of this email, and we're very pleased to get the email. But I'm going to say that a Ukrainian soldier on the front, I would believe, would have a very good idea of what weapons he's facing. Uh, but maybe that's not the case. Uh, this is the... Uh, object of the email. So here's some detail about this particular ML5 submunition. And what it says is that it's got incendiary uh, elements of magnesium cups filled with a thermotype mixture. So possibly what we're seeing is this, and I accept the element of doubt. Uh, but the email goes on to say it's also counterintuitive that Russia, having rigidly adhered to international law in the special military operation up to this point would use a weapon that contravenes Article 2 of Protocol 3 of the Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons as it applies to the use of incendiary weapons upon personnel. Um, people can freeze the screen to get the rest of this email, but I want to say that if you actually follow this link up, you come to this, United Nations, here's the convention, and you eventually come to three protocols at the top of the inset box. Uh, protocol one is non-detectable fragments. Protocol two, prohibitions or restrictions on the use of mines, booby traps and other devices. And protocol three, prohibitions or, or restrictions on the use of incendiary weapons. And if we go through to the detail on that, and again, we'll leave this for people, or we will, people will be able to freeze it to read the detail. Uh, what I'm going to say is that when you read this, this is all about protecting civilians in the first instance. It is not about protecting troops on the ground. And also phosphorus is not identified separately uh, as a particular substance. And if you research further, you will find that this is commented on quite a lot. So um, here, here is a, a particular article. I could have chosen many. They're backed up by... Um, uh, papers at law. But this one says allegation of white phosphorus munitions being used by Russia and Ukraine emerge. Read if it's considered a chemical weapon. And is it illegal to use it during war? And if you get into the detail, in fact, there is nothing actually banning the use of white phosphorus if it is being used against troops. And one of the things that the Russians have consistently said is that where they're shelling or attacking uh, built up areas, they have already 
ascertained that there are not civilians in those areas. So we'll leave the audience to think about that. I'll just add that uh, for our own military, we fall into a perilous state as we're giving equipment to Ukraine. We can't even keep our own fleet safe. And we have this incredibly dangerous uh, incident of a major fire on one of our Trident uh, nuclear submarines. These are the bombers, the nuclear deterrent boats. So it was a fire, an electrical fire, which got so bad uh, that the submarine actually had to surf, uh, come to the surface in order to clear the air from the submarine. Um, but what we learn in the article from the Sun is that it was overdue for a major refit. And this reinforces information that's uh, been given to the UK column that the Royal Navy's maintenance and refit capability is increasingly chaotic. Uh, this story also reported in the Daily Mail here. And um, uh, there, there is this key bit, the 30-year-old vessel, which is overdue a major refit broke surface in the North Atlantic to flush out toxic fumes. This is an absolute no-no because, of course, the moment that submarine came to the surface, its covert mission was completely um, blown apart. Uh, but the fact that we're now getting major fires in nuclear deterrent nuclear submarines is very serious. Yes. OK, let's uh, come back to the UK then. And uh, well, the public order bill, it's working its way through Parliament at the moment. More uh, amendments being published on a daily basis. Uh, but why are we mentioning this? Because the campaign, and I'm going to call it a campaign to provide public support for this bill, uh, continues with Just Stop Oil uh, shutting down the M25 for three days now, or at least uh, causing chaos on the M25 for three days. And today we had a police officer injured uh, in a road accident involving two lorries and a police motorcycle. Uh, but the notion of dictatorship continues to build in this country uh, while the government is busy uh, claiming around the world that we've got to protect journalistic rights and so on. In the UK, journalists are being arrested uh, for attempting to cover uh, Just Stop Oil's protest. Uh, and uh, so this is uh, Rich Felgate uh, tweeting out yesterday myself, a documentary maker, filmmaker Tom, uh, Tom's Dinner. Uh, a press photographer got arrested by Hearts Police while filming Just Stop Oil protest from a public footbridge over the M25. Um, so let's have a look at the little video clip that was embedded in that tweet uh, and you'll get an idea of what happened. Okay, I'm a press, I'm a member of the press. Can I give you three minutes? Can I show you my press card? I'm sorry, officer, you, you can't arrest me. Okay, so, because I'm here as a member of the press. Yeah, I need to confirm that. Yeah, you can be detained on section one of pace. Right, information. What? Criminal? Section four, yep. Right, right my book. Warrant number is PC2892. I'm, a, I'm, I'm quite obviously a member of the press, you know, in the middle of the camera, it's a public place. Listen, it's only a search. You're being why searched. are you searching me? If, um, why, sorry, why? Search you for items <laughs> of racial damage. Here, to tell you. <laughs> why are you handcuffing me if you're just searching? <laughs> okay, so you get the point. Uh, and Alex, what, what I find particularly interesting about this, uh, one of the, I believe it was uh, the Photographer then had his house searched by the three police turned up at, at his property and searched his property as, as well, waking up his wife and uh, child 
while he was in the police station and not being released until I think 1.30 in the morning. Uh, this is quite a significant development because, you know, what is normally supposed to happen, uh, I believe, you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, is that the police should be making some effort to identify the people that they're arresting, uh, at which point, as you heard clearly on the video there, there was an offer to show them their press card. Uh, so th this was an unlawful arrest. It was a very unlawful arrest, and you could have it on better authority than mine because we are going to disseminate shortly a clip I've just received from ex-policeman Charles Mallet of 60, 12 minutes long, I think, uh, talking about this in detail. And these are the points he hones in on. Um, apart from the slurred addiction, you're being detained on a section of the pace, which seems to be the only way that a policeman can talk to you now, which is no good even for young people in or in people in their prime with good hearing, native speakers. That's no good. But... The key of it is Section 1 of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act 1984 uh, doesn't allow arrest. It allows for detaining. The second PC you heard got that right. The first didn't when he said you're under arrest. It's detaining to determine whether people in an area which an inspector or above has said is suspect. We can understand that bit because of the protesters and they need to go and search and, and uh, ascertain whether there are any people with weapons there. You need to go to those people and say, I'm detaining you with reasonable suspicion that you have one of these items, knives, fireworks are the kinds of things that are mentioned. Uh, and if you have them, you can be arrested. If you don't, you're let go without being arrested. It's a detaining much less that you should have your house searched. But as Charles says towards the end of the clip, we'll be disse disseminating. There may have been confusion here, terrible training by high command, which is Charles, something to Charles deplores more generally. Uh, political priorities, and it's very easy to sway the, the police into action by uh, being a, a loud mouth protest with a, a good media team behind you. Uh, but the core of it is this house search. Uh, where does this arise from? Uh, it, even at a stretch, it would be hard to justify it under any part of the old legislation pace. But you've uh, shown recently all the dictatorial measures. One of them is the police courts crime and sentencing. It's an act now that in, I think, Section 56 does allow for more nastiness to happen if people have been supposedly unlawfully protesting the criminalizing of protests, which went on recently. But this is all uh, a complete mess, uh, extremely bad training. Perhaps there's a silver lining, Alex, is I wonder whether incidents like this are actually finally going to wake up other members of the so-called mainstream media and press to understand that their liberties are being stripped away with everybody else. You know, if you're a, if you're a, Ma a Daily Mail reporter or maybe even a BBC reporter, it does not automatically mean that you are going to be protected from uh, the police abusing the law. We'll uh, see. Well, it, it has. And, and the, the some of the journalistic organizations have already been quite vociferous in their opposition to it. But Alex, sticking with the idea of dictatorship, uh, let's uh, have a look at national identity. Yes, digital identity uh, is coming in in every part of the UK, both at devolved and UK central level, as it is rapidly in many other parts of the world. So uh, here we have a government body which by statute is still supposed to be called the Scottish Executive, but it's rechristened itself first the Scottish Government and now it goes by Rialtas Nahalaba. But anyway, it's, it's identity, maybe a Freudian slip of significance that you said national identity there because they're, they're very keen on that these days. But this is for people to be interested in a digital identity service for Scotland. It's uh, an open event on the 16th of November for 2pm for two hours. And you can see here that they are very keen to have people lodge questions 
Think of how Debbie Evans responds with the MHRA and Act Likewise. It's an online event, but you can lodge questions while registering or during the two hours of the event. It's about improving access to people public services, we are told. And it's about storing attributes in digital lockers so that if the government has said, we, uh, we accept that you live there or we accept that you have this qualification, you can use that again. But supposedly not obligatory, if you believe that. Meanwhile, a viewer has sent this from their pension plan. Uh, a photograph of a paper mail that they got. Uh, we are hoping, says the pension fund uh, in a monthly magazine, to trial a new digital ID verification service in the new year. You can upload your passport or driving license because of course Britain has seen off a mandatory ID many times, most recently 2005, but we can still have it this way and perform a face recognition identity check. There's so much news coming out from the register, reclaim the net, so many other outlets about unlawful and questionable use of people's uh, data, such as facial recognition software. The Metropolitan Police has been wrapped over the knuckles for it last month in a serious way. The Americans are finding the same problem now. But there we are. And Forbes is announcing as a quality magazine, so you should take note that the UK has announced initial steps for a UK-wide national digital identity. Uh, the DCMS is the governing department for that. Uh, it's going to promise to make digital ID as secure as passports and driving licenses. Tap that again and you will see that the first step is that there's going to be a, yet another office. So just like Ofsted and all the other things that we know about, there's a new one, ODIA, a significantly named body. The ODIA, the Office for Digital Identities, will certify people with a trust mark. Britain has long had such a thing as a kite mark. And this will say basically that you're an, an, an approved part of the public-private partnership, the global G3P, as Ian Davis would call it. And to do this, says the British government, it will bring forward legislation, but it hasn't committed to when the parliamentary time will be allowed, uh, will be found for it, to establish this. It will also create a legal gateway, and here's the real money, this is where you can really coin it as a retired politician or, or a civil servant, to allow trusted organisations to do verification checks, uh, to say that people are who they say they are. So the government will be paying using your money for that. If you believe that's about easy users, access to services, uh, I may have a bridge to sell you. Uh, indeed. Uh, and I'd be, I'm sure lots of people will be buying it as well, Alex. Uh, okay, if you like what the UK Column does and you'd like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. Or you could pick something up at the UK Column shop, including a membership voucher. Um, we'll say a very big thank you to the people who have picked up a voucher and uh, would encourage more people to do that because it's a very big help to us. Uh, and do please share the material you find on the various platforms. So. Okay, well, I just want to mention this one very briefly on screen. There are a lot of people contacting the column saying, uh, are you reporting um, on immigration and how serious this is and what's happening? And we are hearing absolutely what the audience is saying. We are very concerned about what's happening. Uh, so I'm going to say, yes, we are paying attention. We will be reporting more and keep sending us information. And watch last Monday's Extra, in fact. Indeed, yeah. Um, okay, Alex, uh, the UK and British Isles, there's a news and media outlet called UK Column. Sorry. Uh, it looks like it's been written by someone in some part of Asia, uh, but it's, it's just very sweet in, a, in the best sense that somebody from afar is calling us honest and digestible and recommending far away from Britain uh, that, that we are to be watched. Uh, here's another of uh, a couple of examples just taken from Twitter because it's still the 
a platform that covers politics most in social media world. Jake Reddy uh, responding to uh, a Scot who has taken on a fake Ukrainian identity with fake Ukrainian translation saying we stand with Ukraine, resp- replies to this guy, the Mekon, and says, well, if you watched UK Column, which this got in, uh, in, in this Twitter thread has derided as fake news, they have thousands of sources after every program that you just can't take your head off for a moment. The world is not a closed book just because mainstream news would have you think so. Uh, I appreciate that. Uh, Big G's blog, unfortunately, from Wales, uh, which is very closely aligned with UK Column Views, has had a, a big blow because Gwilym, who runs it, has been hospitalised following a heart attack. So for those who weren't aware, it's now clear that he's going to have to have a prolonged break. So that's why the uh, uh, coverage is not quite, not current on Big G's blog, which is a great shame for him and more generally for Wales, because there's so much going on in Wales uh, at the moment that does need coverage. Uh, one more appreciated point uh, in uh, the last 24 hours is that Terry on Twitter, who has the handle no to mandates, says UK column puts the madness in perspective. I think that's exactly what we do. Yeah, OK. Uh... A couple more from me, yes. yes. Uh, just while we're on Richard D. Hall, uh, it's an obscure link. You can see it at the top of the page. It will be in the show notes as uh, more easily found that way. Uh, just to put in people in mind that Richard D. Hall, who's now been battle-axed by Mariana Spring and the whole BBC clout, uh, is not the only man who has his doubts as to what happened in the Manchester arena. Uh, you can't just isolate him and call him a, a horrible troll. So UK critical thinker, who is local, I think, Mancunian, he no longer does uh, critical thinking videos. He says that after coming to Christianity, Uh, He no longer uh, does stuff about the government, which is not the view that all of us take who are Christians. But he did produce this in April 2018. uh, And it's a a, a year and four months before Richard D. Hall ever touched the Manchester Arena questions. And it covers the same questionable footage on screen. At the moment, you can see a reply which, to their credit, Merthyr Tydfil Council promptly gave me, and in Welsh as well, well done to them, uh, about why Richard D. Hall's stall had been removed. And I put to them a direct question, did the BBC put you up to it? And I've got a direct no from Vicky from Corporate Communications at Merthyr. So there you have it. The BBC did not, if we believe Merthyr Tidville Council, and I think I do here, did not lean upon uh, uh, the, the council. It was simply that Mr Hall's uh, stall had some local people complaining about it. And that was what gave the council cold feet. OK, thank you, Alex. Well, I just wanted to add that um, Debbie's interview with Fran Adamson has uh, got some very long legs. So this interview is spreading all over the place and we're going to say well done to Fran for having the courage to come forward and speak to us and well done Debbie for making it happen so it does appear that when people speak from the heart it starts to move. Yes Uh, now a lot of people will be familiar with this type of uh, headline this is from Reuters Uh, some time ago fact check social media claims that masks today children's speech development are missing context Uh, and here's another one uh, from AFP fact check, unproven claims of masks harming speak de- speech development spread online. Uh, well, the uh, this was being tweeted out this morning. The number of five and six year olds who need speech and language support at school has risen by 10% in England over the past year. BBC analysis shows uh, and uh, they, the, the uh, campaign group here, which is uh, their chief executive was on BBC Radio 4 this morning. So here is the BBC uh, article, child speech delays increase following lockdowns. A total of 42,341 children required extra support in 2021-2022, up from 38,560 in 2020-2021. Uh, 
this is the year group who started reception. Uh, that's, so that's four-year-olds after the first lockdown and had considerable disruption to their early year, uh, years learning. Previous rises in speech and language needs have been put down to larger student numbers and better detection in schools, uh, but the latest increase is much bigger. Um, so uh, there's no suggestion here in the BBC article, at least, uh, about a connection to mask wearing as such. Uh, but certainly, once again, we're not seeing any uh, willingness to investigate uh, the possibility or the likelihood that that was part and parcel of it. I think it's very significant, Mike. We are seeing this in an increasing number of BBC articles. If the, if the subject matter appears hostile to the government in particular, the BBC reports it as a factual statement, but they don't do any investigation. So in the public's mind, oh yes, I remember something on the BBC about that, therefore it must be okay. So I think this is more very, very clever, pernicious propaganda by the BBC, uh, which is lying by omission, basically. Yes. Well, uh, good news, everybody. Uh, the first ever clinical trial of laboratory-grown red blood cells is being, being transfused into another person is taking place. It has been launched. Uh, this is NHS Blood and Transplant, and they're saying that red blood cells uh, that have been grown in a laboratory have now been transfused into another person in a world-first clinical trial. The manufactured blood cells were grown from stem cells from donors. Uh, now, we have a little bit of uh, video on this, so let's uh, just have a look at how they're promoting it. So RESTORE is a clinical trial that's set up to assess whether uh, lab-grown red blood cells, so red cells grown from stem cells in the lab, are similar or better than the, the, a, a donor's own um, blood cells that they produce inside their body. What we're hoping is actually is because they're so freshly made and ready to go, they'll be better. And if that's true, then this will be a world first because effectively we've, we've taken a cell producing a donor and we've put them into a volunteer who's not related to the donor and they've been matched. But the only other time this has been done in the past is where it's been taken from a, a person and then gone back into that person. So now we've taken it a step further. We've taken it from a donor that's not related. That donor's produced blood and then it's gone into somebody unrelated and, and effectively that's the world first. That's called allogeneic, um, it's effectively an allogeneic transfusion. So there we go. Uh, but now what could the possible implications of this be? Well, let's just come back to uh, March this year and Science Daily, and the headline in their report here is researchers re-engineer red blood cells to trigger immune system against COVID-19. And this says that physicists, chemists and, chemists and immunologists at McMaster University have teamed up to modify red blood cells to transport viral agents, which can safely trigger the immune system, protect the body against SARS-CoV-2. Uh, and how are they doing this? Well, because they're embedding the spike protein in the wall, cell wall of the red blood cells and uh, wanting to see the spike protein distributed around the body uh, that way. Now, I'm not suggesting that there's any connection between that piece of research and the clinical trial, which NHS Blood and Transfusion are doing. Uh, I'm suggesting that, again, there are questions that need to be asked and answered there. Uh, Debbie, very briefly, what, what are your thoughts on this? I'm absolutely horrified. This is not a good idea. I mean, basically, this is genetically modified blood. blood grown in a laboratory. And interestingly, you know, when I've spoken uh, to Dr. Anne-Marie Yim in Luxembourg, she had um, got evidence of after the COVID vaccine, we were seeing sickle, uh, sickle, sickle cells appearing 
so they were becoming shaped like a sickle and this this lab grown blood i believe is what's going forward for people with sickle cell anemia for example so extremely worrying um we know all about spike proteins blood transfusion cambridge tons i could say mike but i'll save it for another day okay thank you and alex Yes, uh, just say in passing that uh, donated blood is very dear to my heart because my wife needed hundreds of donations of blood through periods of illness. And I think she will be even more horrified when I tell her about this. Uh, but yes, just uh, scooting through this section because the real health expert is Debbie and I don't want to uh, shorten her segments later. But uh, this is really acknowledgements to viewers on some health issues that have been flagged up to us. Bill Fring has been very persistent in asking the Dorset University Hospitals NHS Trust, a trust is a local NHS body that governs itself, uh, about uh, their statistics. So we see that they finally coughed up. Um, they were created on, in October 2020, so during the COVID uh, hullabaloo already. Uh, the next slide shows what they were asked, uh, which was the number of patients who have been referred to the Heart Failure Diagnostic Clinic within their trust. And of course, for that part of Southwest England, they being the teaching hospitals are the ones who are going to get the difficult heart cases. And it's the Royal Bournemouth and the Poole other hospitals. And you see the uh, normal almost doubling from 2020 to 21 at the Royal Bournemouth from 293 to 508. And at Poole, uh, half as many again, 2021, 200 go up to 288. Uh, Bill Fring has uh, really persisted there. And I think that people should uh, do likewise. From Down Under, uh, a Scotsman who's now gone to the Northern Territory as an uh, emigre for most of his life writes this, that the New, Test uh, the New Testament, what a, what a telling era, the Northern Territory Government Gazette uh, is covering this. It's authorising clinics across the top end, which is Northern Australia, to administer smallpox slash monkeypox vaccine. And we know in the Northern, Northern Territory, they claim, oh, well, we're remote and we have a lot of Aborigines and we have, have to have special measures. Well, uh, the, the viewer who writes uh, points that out to him, for himself. The clinics are in Darwin, the state capital, and in Catherine, largely attended by Indigenous or Aboriginal people. Um, the viewer just looked up a bit about this particular vaccine. It's not an mRNA technology. And it's been tested for efficacy in animals, monkeys and prairie dogs and gave about 80 percent satisfactory results. It's been tested on humans for safety and never and, and also considered safe, but never tested for efficacy in humans. Um, and that there's a phase three trial going on in the Congo. So uh, shades of experimenting on black people, I'm sorry to say, I have to put it as bluntly as that. The same viewer says on another issue that their uh, last state um, premier, uh, the bug-eyed Michael Gunner uh, of the famous clip saying, you're not my, on my side anymore unless you advocate for jabbing. Uh, Gunner's got a new job. He's been appointed by Dr. Twiggy Forrest, as he's known out there, to lead a private foundation that's pushing the gene, green agenda on Northern Australia. Look at the, agenda, the Orwellian language used in the NT News, the Northern Territory News. Here it is from a photograph from Sholto who sent this in. Gunner goes green. He's uh, attempting there to pose like a smiling uh, ordinary man with his children. And here's the detail from the article. Mr. Garner will head a new Northern Australian team uh, for Fortu Fortescue Future Industries, uh, who are the people who founded, uh, they're, the, they're the people founded by Andrew Twiggy Forrest, uh, who's got Gunner this new job. And here's the uh, underlining, uh, which Sholto uh, gave me when he sent it in. Gunner says, we must bring the same urgency to the climate change race to real zero, what's real zero, I wonder, that we did with the global COVID pandemic. Well, you know how Gunner went around the COVID pandemic with his zero zeal. So watch out, 
Um, a blog on Blogspot, sorry, on Substack, which is very popular, uh, is the Metatron, also known as Dead Man Talking. And here we have something uh, which is only two years late, but all general practitioners, that's family doctors in England, not in the whole of the UK, have just received this Dear Clinician's Note, reports Joel Smalley, who, who runs that Substack blog. And you can see that it's saying, uh, did you know that there's a yellow card scheme? Uh, and if you if you suspect there's what they call side effects to COVID jabs, you can report it. Uh, so no, better late than never. Something's happening there. On regard with regard to masks, the Critic, a serious uh, journal in Britain, reports there's no case for mask mandates. Subtitle: We cannot trust models based on bogus assumptions. Why is this? Well, if you'll uh, bring on that on screen. It's that just a month and a bit ago, Dame Ruth May, the chief nursing officer, uh, responded on behalf of the CEO of NHS England, Amanda Pritchard, and said, we have strong evidence that widespread masking had a significant impact on preventing COVID transmission. It now turns out that this was a preprint. It's not even been peer reviewed, and there's problems enough with peer reviewing in medical journals, as people are increasingly aware. This is just a preprint, so someone's own findings not reviewed by anyone, saying it's a, basically a hypothetical computer model. So the critic has more details on the next slide. We won't read it all out. We can freeze the screen, but it's not been peer reviewed. It has a cautionary note explicitly that it shouldn't be retreated as gospel. And then the final paragraph is comment, cultural descent into ubiquitous masks in hospitals and health centres, which has got really no justification and is inhumane. It's faceless professionals hidden behind veneers of sterility. I thought that's strong language. Another write-up of the same is in the Daily Skeptic, who, having cited the critic in the, what I've just shown people, uh, write in their own regard, the modelling preprint itself, so that the, the one paper uh, used by NHS England to say why they have masks as a policy, that preprint itself acknowledges that there are, quote, important gaps in the evidence base and that, quote, evidence around the efficacy, remember that uh, with the jab a, a moment ago from Northern Territory, efficacy of interventions such as wearing masks is severely lacking. Yet by assuming mask efficacy in its model, the paper used finds that face coverings will prevent 46,000 infections of healthcare staff. Uh, from the Daily Mail, uh, we've got Sage. Most of our viewers know who they are, uh, the bane of many people's existence during COVID, the scientific advisory group to the British government that told them to, to lock people down hard and do things to, harshly to them, say, and, and to, to inculcate in them a sense that we're all in it together. Sage is now being quoted as saying this, according to one of its members, Professor Catherine Noakes, a mechanical engineer at the University of Leeds, that uh, the people are... Uh, trying to save money by not heating their homes and closing their windows, but this causes a lack of ventilation, and they could get ill and have re uh, heightened levels of damp and mould in their houses. Well, I don't know about you, but uh, we're saving money as well by keeping the heating off, but uh, we managed to uh, ventilate rooms while we're not using them. With this study at the moment, it's got the windows closed, and when I leave it and go to the living room, I'll open the window here. You'd have thought that wasn't beyond people, but no, Sage has got a, an advice on that. Uh, something we have to say since Debbie's uh, uh, clip went viral, we'll be talking about that in her own segment later, is that this, uh, largely through the sloppy headline uh, orthography in the source she used, uh, Endpoint News, it's not all her fault, she read this out on air as uh, not as a, an abbreviation for phase three, P-H-I-I-I, but as P-H-1-1-1, as if it was a vaccine um, uh, code. And that has, uh, well, it's a good good thing in a way that it's gone viral. Uh, you'll see hear more about that from Debbie herself. Just to point out to people that there is no Pfizer vaccine coded PH111. This was an abbreviation for phase three. 
Uh, we reported that in the show notes. Uh, and this has gone on to a Belgian blogger uh, who's picked up on this as well, uh, Olivier de Mullenaire, who uh, says in his headline, they want to inject children from their mother's belly onwards, which is accurate. Uh, Debbie was accurate about this. And they want to inject humanity by all means possible. And you can see there that PH111 has been caught out uh, or have been picked up from this mishearing uh, or mis misreading. Uh, but just to show that this isn't UK column uh, only saying this, uh, News Medical Life Sciences has uh, a piece up from the 1st of November separately reporting this. And if you tap that again, we'll find what the actual uh, vaccination code number is. Uh, it is a vaccine candidate with the code PF-06928316. So lest anyone say that there's any fake news involved here, uh, we've tracked it down. Quickly on to Brazil, we'll just show a few seconds each of a few silent clips uh, from the huge uh, country that is Brazil, from the various states. Um, this is just a still for people to get a good idea. They'll find it in the show notes of, uh, uh, of what's going on through Brazil. Here's the first of uh, the uh, uh, still the, the silent playouts. This is drone footage of a number of people protesting. Uh, what they're going on about is that Jair Bolsonaro is declared to have lost the presidential election. The globalist Lula uh, has uh, been declared the winner. You can see how many truckers are involved uh, in going to military bases largely because they're asking the military uh, basically to countermand, countermand the national police, the federal police, who have been ordered directly by the Supreme Court and the, the, the Electoral Court, which share judges, uh, basically the top judiciary in all its guises. They've ordered the police um, to arrest anyone and, and ultimately to, to lock them up for a year. Uh, is what the order to the courts is if they question um, uh, on the streets uh, that Lula won fair and square. It looks very much like he didn't. You can see bikers uh, rallying in Sao Paulo here. Uh, we'll move on to the next clip to see more footage. A nighttime rally. This is at a military barracks. I'm afraid I don't know which city this is in. Uh, looks a fairly tropical, maybe northern Brazilian setting. They've come out at night there to have a, a, a light rally. Uh, what they're doing is petitioning the military to step in uh, and not to allow the national police, uh, Policia Nacional, uh, to brutalize people simply for doing this kind of thing. This is an example from Amazonia near the um, Brazilian border in the state of, uh, uh, I forget what abbreviation that is, but Cuiabá is a city near the Bolivian border. Um, uh, that you can see huge numbers of people out all over uh, different zones of that country, not just the European uh, settled south, which is you know very Bolsonaro, but even in the parts which are regarded as Lula support bases, where people are of more African heritage or indigenous, there's a lot of popular support uh, for uh, finding that Bolsonaro was robbed of this election in a way that uh, allegedly is becoming increasingly common in Western countries. Uh, so there's uh, quite a lot still to be expected there. The final silent clip is, uh, you can see the, uh, the, the oozing superciliousness of this man, I have to say. Alexandre de Moraes is the president of the Superior Electoral Court, the Higher Electoral Court of Brazil. Uh, he's also got a role in the Supreme Court, and he is the man who's uh, given orders to the police. I don't know how constitutional that is in Brazil. It would be irregular in most countries, saying the election's been done. Lula's won. He's going to be certified on the 19th. We already know he's going to be president on New Year's Day. Stop complaining already. And you can see the harsh attitude. He's acting as a kind of interim president, a president in my view, uh, in much the way that the U.S. Supreme Court justices are increasingly doing uh, not good, uh, especially if people go to prison for a year for questioning what's been going on here. Uh, lots of emphasis on this word democracy and democratic uh, being used as a weapon, really, to, to bash people over the head.
or expressing their views. And you can see he, in the subtitling, he's talking about people being criminals. Uh, he may be referring to the truckers and bikers and people with the, uh, uh, with the flickering lights outside the uh, military barracks. I don't see uh, how that's criminal. Uh, but there you are. De Moraes says democracy is won again in Brazil. Finally, in my international contributions, Flanders, which has got very high autonomy within Belgium, it's the Dutch-speaking north of Belgium, uh, has its own parliament. And the party there, which advocates the independence of Flanders from Belgium, Flams Belang, uh, has put out a press release. Uh, interestingly, they do it in their own language only because they're not globalists. They actually want to speak to their own people. So they say in Dutch that Flams Belang has asked the premier of the Flemish government, which is equivalent to the Scottish government in that it's you know devolved within a, a, a sovereign nation, they've asked them to, to leave the WEF. Uh, they managed to get Jan Jambon, the premier, to tell them that they've spent a couple of hundred thousand euros just on World Economic Forum membership fees and attendance fees per year. And when Jambon went on to give his usual spiel about, uh, next slide for that, uh, his usual spiel about why it's important to be in the WEF, uh, parliamentarians always get this kind of spiel. Uh, it's important for inclusion, diversity, blah, 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 blah. It's important for us to take part in Davos. And if you tap that again, you will see that the Flams Belang member of parliament in the Flemish parliament who asked this question, Mr. Von Roy, said, uh, your answers are more concerning uh, than we even thought. So would you please uh, take the Flemish government out of the World Economic Forum uh, because it's, this, uh, it's, it's great to talk lofty ambitions, uh, but we can't do that in the, in the context of and under the auspices of the World Economic Forum because it's a globalist lobby group and it's not in favour of our people. Uh, this has also been written up in English. The RAIR Foundation USA reports this up as, uh, with a full translation in English as Flemish Conservative Party demands the government cancels its WEF membership. So it can be done if you've got the right parliamentarians. Mm. OK, Alex, thank you very much for that. We've just got two um, uh, little segments here. These are slightly out of sync because they should have been with the other vaccine information, but we'll pop them up. Uh, this was sent through to the UK column, EU vaccination roadmap 2018 to 2022. Uh, if you were sceptical about EU vaccination passport planning, here are the receipts. So we've, uh, we've put a link through to that if you want to follow that through and see what was happening. Uh, the other thing is we just want to give a mention to Sir Christopher Chope, who is still battling hard um, wherever he can to support people who've suffered as a result of uh, the vaccines. Um, um, this is going back to March 2022, but nevertheless, what's been said is very pertinent. And also want to bring in this uh, gentleman, Danny Kruger, Conservative Devices, um, because he's also in this particular debate uh, pointing out concerns about the safety and efficacy of the vaccines. And we understand that he is doing some really excellent work uh, alongside uh, Christopher Chope and other MPs to tackle the government. So we're going to say watch out for those names. And if you can, uh, we would encourage people to give uh, give them help with information, but also encouragement in general terms. Now, let's switch uh, subjects and move on to Wales, where a very brave group of ladies have been challenging the government's religious and sex education. They say, and I think they're spot on, that what the government is trying to do is sexualise children. Uh, but with days to go until the, um, the case comes to court on the 15th of November, 
surprise, surprise, the BBC comes up with what appears to me to be a hit piece on those uh, ladies trying to protect young children from over-sexualisation. So here's the headline, sex education, Gwynedd councillor harassed over scheme support. And if we get into the uh, meat, well, this is the opening of the article. So I think this is very much uh, the BBC spinning the line. A councillor has been threatened over her support for new relationship and sex education teaching in Wales. Gwynedd Council's Becca Brown believes the lessons will keep children safe and said most parents agree, but she has been abused online and called a pedo lover by opponents. The Welsh government is introducing the RSE code as part of the new curriculum and said it is, quote, vital to support young healthy people build healthy relationships. So the BBC absolutely focusing on the government line. There is no alternative view put across. But let's see how they uh, stick the knife in. So here's some comments from Becca Brown herself. Uh, there's apparently been a polarising response to the new code. There's been a lot of negative public response, but privately many people have been supportive. So I've put a little note there, evident for evidence for private support. No evidence in the BBC article whatsoever that people in Wales support this. Uh, we are simply given effectively uh, a hearsay statement. And if we go on through, she also says we've been called, some of us, councillors, paedophiles. I've been called a pedo lover. I've been threatened too. Someone said I'd put a rope around my own neck for supporting the code. Someone else said I deserve the death penalty. So um, just very quickly, Alex, this is pure hearsay in this article, wound up as if we have factual comment, or so it appears to me. Yes, it's it's not even the lowest standards of public service uh, broadcasting there that have been met. It's just a, a woman who's uh, been allowed to attest certain things. I find what she's saying uh, fundamentally and profoundly incredible. Uh, because she she's a councillor in Slandrig, a large village, a Welsh-speaking village in Arvon. Uh, American viewers might be fascinated to know this. Arvon was actually a dry county, something that Americans probably think only they had, up until 1982, if I remember correctly, 40 years ago. And that's because uh, uh, Arvon is dominated, less so now, but the, 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 in the lifetime of people living there, completely dominated by hard Protestant chapels uh, that wouldn't have any drinking, any Sunday opening, uh, and certainly any sexualization of children. And I know there's been a change in people's minds there as well, but I do not find that uh, Becca Brown's credible here, and I don't even think that she has her party Plaid Cymru with her. There is an element, of course, of North and South Wales vying and Labour and Plaid vying to see who can be more woke, uh, but I do not believe that people in Slandrig would in any majority support what's been going on with the RSE curriculum. Okay, thank you for that. Well, let's see what the police did, um, because she talks about that. The police have been here to talk to me about safety measures, what I can do to keep myself and my home safe. Uh, that wasn't something I'd expected when I took charge of the council's edu education portfolio. So now this lady, and I'm sure she has, the police have visited her home and what have they told her? We think you're under sufficient threat that we need to come and talk to you and tell you how to protect yourself. So now this lady's in a state of fear from her own constituents, for want of a better word. But if we go back and look at when she was elected, as reported here, uh, uh, meet Gwynedd's newest councillor after the uh, Lanrug by-election win, 
she said she looked forward to joining the Plaid Cymru Gwynedd group of councillors and work with them to represent the county's residents. Thank you very much. And she said she'd do her utmost for the people of Lanrook and will work on your behalf to represent this area to the best of my ability. But it appears that she's not going to do that if you dare challenge uh, what the um, national, uh, national UK government is saying and also the Welsh government. And uh, she also, uh, in the BBC article, of course, reinforced um, why the RSE education was fine. More importantly, every child has the right to access education that will keep them safe, that supports them in making wise, healthy decisions. This will in turn keep them happy in their relationships, whether that means platonic friendships or if they decide to settle down with someone in the future when they're older. So this is all loving stuff to help children, the government claims. We would say, and certainly the uh, ladies working in Wales would say, no, this is grooming children. Um, but um, Alex, uh, you've picked up on some good news because it appears that the Muslim community are now coming in with an intervention in order to get involved on the side of those Welsh mothers. Yes, the mother's organisation is publicchildprotectionwales.org uh, and they have this very significant press release on their website. We are delighted to hear that the Muslim community in Wales, I wouldn't know which individuals or organisations, but some Muslims in Wales have been granted an intervention, so a right to speak on the judicial review. For those who don't know, it's the 15th and 16th of, of November in Cardiff and contact PCP Wales to find out how you can register with the courts to be there in person or digitally. It will very much influence, I think, uh, the, pro the propriety of proceedings, uh, if not swing the outcome, if they know how much support there is. Uh, but Muslim parents are coming on board, as they have done in Birmingham, in uh, Tower Hamlets, in East London. Uh, and really, this will not be something that the BBC uh, enjoys reporting on, I have to say. And the, the whole backstory from the Gwynedd, which is the northwest of Wales, so it's not where the action is uh, with these PCP Wales mothers. But the, 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 when Gwynedd came into the story is when it was reported by no less than the BBC that there had been uproar at an extraordinary meeting of Gwynedd County Council about this relationships and sexual education plan. Uh, and it was claimed that the gallery had to be cleared, that public were getting boisterous. Uh, the mothers at Public Child Protection Wales have said in the last podcast-a-thon they did last weekend that they have gone up and asked uh, the North Walians about this, and they've been told this is total bunkum. There was no disorder. It's just journalistic spin. So it's, again, the BBC creating the news and pushing a sexualisation agenda. Okay, Alex, thank you for that. And if uh, viewers, listeners want to understand uh, more about uh, um, the, the warnings of the Welsh mums, uh, go to the UK column and have a look out for uh, a telephone call with Kimberly Isherwood, where Kim was talking to me about their concerns. And I think most parents should be very concerned. You put this together, the text together, Alex, and you linked through to uh, this links sexualization of very young children. That in turn takes us through to another UK column article that was written back in 2018 by David Scott, when he was pointing out that people convicted of, of uh, crimes against children were actually being used in the background in order to produce policy as to how to protect children. So this is the pernicious nature of the sex education lessons, who has created them, why are they so gross, and uh, is the establishment keeping us safe? We'll just say that uh, another big thank you to 
um, uh, Liberty Tactics, Louise Collins, uh, for working with the mums to help raise money to get that uh, court case through. Okay, well, this brings us to Debbie. And uh, Debbie, you have some really incredible information um, from health and matters to do with the NHS, but we're kicking off here with patient safety. Yeah, thank you, Brian. And, you know, I just want to explain to everyone that um, we are walking a journey with the vaccine injured and we always respect their views, always. So I decided to write again to Henrietta Hughes and let's remind ourselves of who Henrietta Hughes is. She's the first ever patient safety commissioner that was appointed as a result of the Baroness Cumberledge Do No Harm report. So I thought I'm going to write to her again and I'm going to write a very friendly, um, gentle letter to ask her if we could facilitate a meeting between herself and those that are vaccine injured. And, and the letter was very, very polite. And you can just freeze it on screen there. I won't read it all out, but basically I was agreeing with what Dr. Henrietta Hughes had herself said that she'd seen that stories were harrowing and traumatic. So I was kind of trying to appeal to her, to her better judgment really to have a meeting urgently. And much to my surprise, I received a reply from the Patient Safety Commissioner. And if you just flip back to that um, screen again, um, Brian, you might, or Mike, you might like to read out the reply from Rachel Downey because it does actually include an exclamation mark. So it's a bit small for me to read out. It says we're currently in the process of setting up the Office of Patient Safety Commissioner uh, and the supporting infrastructure. We don't even have a website yet, exclamation mark. Therefore, we will come back to you uh, once fully established and discuss a potential interview with Henrietta. Thank you for your patience. Thank you. So clearly you can see that Henrietta Hughes, it was announced in June that she would become the Patient Safety Commissioner. And then I believe her first day was the 1st of September. In we've, We haven't even got an office. This is a shell organization. This is ridiculous. So I was really shocked um, to learn that there was nothing in place. Rachel Downey, by the way, used to be editor of the Nursing Times, so she was a journalist. So I wrote back to Rachel um, and I was said I was absolutely horrified that they didn't have any infrastructure. But I'd also contacted Charlotte at CV Families because the one thing that we don't want to do um, at the UK column is to jeopardise any possibility of a meeting. So Charlotte also asked for an urgent meeting and you can read her email there. And she's clearly telling Henrietta Hughes what they are going through and how urgent a meeting is. And there's my letter too. And we kept this quiet because we were really hoping that Dr. Hughes or Rachel would get back to us with a meeting, but they haven't. But the Patient Safety Commissioner has got a Twitter account which is marvellous because that means that we can all tweet her. So PS um, Safety Commissioner is her Twitter account. And when I went onto her Twitter account, I found out that she's been talking to a lot of people. One of these people happens to be the Healthcare Investigation Safety Branch. Now, who had heard of this? So I decided to delve a bit deeper and found that Dr. Hughes had written a blog for this organisation. This organisation was founded by a father 
who was investigating the death of his son. So it's a tragic, a tragic story. But as a result, this father has has he's built this whole institution that we never knew about. And they're linked to the CQC, they're linked to the NHS, they're linked to the GMC, they're linked to the Human Fertilization and Embryology Unit. And just very quickly to tell you what Charlotte, um, what uh, Dr. Henrietta Hughes has said, she said, imagine a world in which all patients would be treated with respect and listened to. Yes, we would like you to listen to us. Well, we would like you to listen to the vaccine injured, please, Dr. Hughes. She said, since taking on her new role, she's been meeting with many of many colleagues in the patient safety world. She says that harm is continuing. She's aware of this. And not only is she aware of it, you know, but she's following CV family on Twitter. So she's very well aware of what's going on. And yet she's not speaking to any of us. And I really am desperate for a meeting to be facilitated. So I don't know if we've got the clip on the um, this healthcare investigation safety branch, which, by the way, James Titcombe, who was the father that founded it, he was appointed by Jeremy Hunt just recently to oversee the patient safety watch. So because Jeremy Hunt is now chancellor, James Titcombe, the father that started the healthcare investigation safety branch, is now in charge of patient safety and in direct communication with Dr. Henrietta Hughes. So perhaps we should be contacting James Titcombe. What do you think, gentlemen? I don't know if you've got the clip. Well, we um, do have handy. the clip, so let, let's watch the clip. If we can watch, yeah. At the Healthcare Safety Investigation Branch, we investigate patient safety concerns in NHS-funded care across England. Importantly, our independent investigations don't apportion blame or liability. Our skilled investigators have experience gained in healthcare, military and safety-critical industries. Each year, they carry out around 1,000 maternity and 30 national investigations. Our national investigations could cover a delay to getting treatment or something that happened at a GP surgery or an incident during a routine procedure in hospital. Whatever it is, our aim is always the same, to conduct independent investigations that improve patient safety. Anyone, whether it's a member of staff, the general public or a patient, can refer a safety concern to us to be considered for one of our national investigations. If this meets with our criteria and with patient permission, our team may investigate. During all of our investigations, whether maternity or national, we work closely with patients, family members and healthcare staff to identify faulty systems or procedures which may cause patient harm. The results of our investigations, which are grounded in both safety science and human factors, allow us to make and share vital learning and safety recommendations to reduce risk across the entire healthcare system. Find out more about what we do by going to our website www.hsib.org.uk and do contact us if you have a concern. So there you have it. I don't know if you've got any thoughts, gentlemen, before I skip on to maternal vaccines. Uh, well, I, I just add that they said early, um, early in that video that there was no blame or liability. They don't get involved in blame or liability. 
So the thing is a toothless tiger in the first place. Uh, but yeah, what is this organization doing uh, to investigate vaccine adverse reactions and the deaths which have been recorded by the MHRA? Well, I suggest we all write to them and we inform them. If, if they don't already know, then um, I'm sure UK Column viewers That's and right, listeners right. can inform them. Um, but um, something caught me, caught my attention this, this week. Uh, that's been going around on mainstream media, the latest NHS advert for getting boosted. Um, and I was absolutely shocked to see that yet again, we are pushing this on pregnant women. And uh, clearly now we can see that there are more spikes in neonatal deaths in Scotland and a review is going to be announced. So the fact that this little advert is doing the rounds is extremely concerning. Um, but have a look at it and see what you think. Vaccines are your best protection against COVID-19 and flu, which spread more quickly in winter and can both cause serious illness. Protection provided by COVID-19 vaccines decreases over time. So if you're over 50 in an at-risk group or pregnant, boost your immunity now. And because flu viruses can change every year, many adults and children can also get a free flu vaccine. Of course, I've had both of mine. Find out if you're eligible and book now. So that's what's going around. Um, and I would just like to remind everybody that the yellow card scheme uh, was born because of thalidomide. And um, you can see clearly there that full fact, uh, don't think that this is relevant at all. And I would be asking full fact, are you absolutely sure that we should be promoting an experimental vaccine on pregnant women? given all of the history. You know, when I was pregnant, I wasn't even allowed to eat soft cheese. <laughs> you know, we weren't allowed to take anything. So this is horrifying. And it brings me on again, and I'd like to thank Alex for correcting me, or making the correction on phase three um, and, and Pfizer. But this, this story goes on, it goes on and on. So I just want to bring it back to that little clip from last week's news does appear to have gone viral and I'm very happy for that to have happened because these maternal vaccines are here to stay. You know, the GlaxoSmithKline earlier in the year paused their study on a maternal vaccine. So they've already paused it because of safety concerns. So this is something going forward. And what worried me even more was the fact that there's going to be a conference now. I mean, we've got conferences into maternal vaccines. So the International Conference for Maternal Immunizations and Viral Vaccines Development, which is going to be held in Rome um, this time next year, 2023. Um, so this is a big, big subject. We've already seen reports of detection of messenger RNA in breast milk. We've already seen the increase in neonatal deaths. We know how dangerous this is, but clearly this is here to stay and it worries me hugely. Um, that going on, I'd also like to say that what we've been warning about in the past with regards to antibiotics, we do seem to be coming up for an antibiotic shortage. Um, amoxicillin is now being reported um, as in short supply. And it seems that a lot of the pharmaceutical manufacturers are uh, halting their antibiotic uh, trials worryingly. So that's just something that we've been predicting for a while. And of course, amoxicillin is a broad spectrum antibiotic. So we are going to see antimicrobial resistance rearing its ugly head. 
So that's where we are with that. Um, I don't know if we're going on to vaccine analytics next, because this is very interesting. Remember last week, we exposed vaccine analytics and I was absolutely delighted. And thanks again, huge thanks to Alex for pointing me in the right direction because they've tweeted our piece of news um, with a, a little cheeky winky emoji there because I really would like to know far more about Dr. John Savopoulos. So I have messaged them and I've asked them if they would, um, would like to talk to us because <laughs> it's great that they're featuring us. So thank you very much, Vaccine Analytics. But then I went to their website again because if you remember on last week's news, I highlighted with a red arrow, uh, sorry, a black arrow, their summer brochure, but then it disappeared. And all the documents within the summer brochure have gone. Luckily though, I did manage to screenshot them all. So if anybody does want copies of them, then we do have them at UK Column. So I thought that was really strange, but then I went back into their website to have a look around and I was very surprised to see that Pfizer and BioNTech have been collaborating for a very long time even going back to 2018. Now, what's interesting about this little article from Vaccine Analytica is that they're saying that this is very unusual. They're saying, what is going on? Why would Pfizer want to dissect vaccines for influenza? And they, they assume that it must be about appropriate platform technology. Why talk about influenza? So this is very interesting, the fact that we've now seen a Pfizer-BioNTech mRNA collaboration back in 2018. So, um, you know, which, which, which bug is going to be next? Which pathogen do you think is going to be next? Well, we've got a choice. So again, this is on Vaccine Analytics website, and I would urge everyone to go and have a look at it um, and screenshot as much as you can, because they seem to be taking things down quite quickly. But they're looking at norovirus, and we have spoken about norovirus before. So that's Vaccine Analytica. Um, I'm very pleased to see that they're uh, interested in UK column. Uh, lastly, on to Mariana Spring. Um, Brian, you asked me to have a look at her programme, Panorama. I did, um, and she put out a very helpful tweet uh, saying that she was delighted with the way that her programme had gone and the feedback she was getting. Uh, for me, it asked more questions than it answered, so I've tweeted her and I've asked if she would like to speak to us because I do have some very genuine questions for her. But as yet, I don't have any answers. I don't know if we've got time for a clip or maybe we can save that for extra. But um, Mariana Spring was focusing very much on the people that had been injured in disasters and were being ignored uh, or were being told they didn't exist or being completely dismissed. And I get that, you know, if somebody's experienced an injury and they're being told their injury doesn't exist and they never went through an experience, I get why they would be very upset, quite rightly. Similarly, as David showed on Monday's programme, people have got death certificates with vaccine causation on them. The vaccine injured have got diagnoses with causation, vaccine damage. But these people aren't being heard. These people's lives are being dismissed. These people's lives are being completely ignored. So my question for Mariana Spring is, yes, please, can we speak so I can introduce you to other people like the ones that you were interviewing that have been dismissed and ignored, not listened to and have been trolled. I would really like to 
introduced Mariana Spring as the disinformation correspondent for the BBC to those people. So if we haven't got time for the clip now, that's no, absolutely we'll, we'll, fine. We'll watch, we'll watch the clip, Debbie. Let's watch this. Okay. Our research suggests that a third of those surveyed feel the pandemic has made them more suspicious of official accounts of UK terror attacks. We were all stuck in our homes online, desperate for information. So people went to online sources, which we know are very associated with belief in uh, conspiracy theories, uh, for that information. That was our only option. We just weren't as much in contact with other aspects of day-to-day -day life. Going from working 100 and odd hour week <laughs> to um, not doing anything was a shock to the system. They've become quite isolated. Alicia says she was hit hard by the pandemic and she doesn't get news from the mainstream media. Where do you keep up to date with what's going on in the world? Well, it isn't off the TV. Why not? No. Um, it's kind of, there's no trust left. There's no trust left. She gets some of her information from the likes of Richard Hall. I'm not gonna say, oh yeah, he's 100% right. He's made a few good points. He's done his research, which is commendable, but nobody knows. So you've got to keep a rational view on her. It's only when I tell her the survivors say Hall's got it wrong, that she appears to change her mind. Does that make it different? Does that cross a line? Well, a very big line, to be honest. If that, if, if that is what he's doing, if it isn't no truth in there, then yeah. I mean, the poor families, it's, you know. I think what was most interesting about speaking to Alicia was when I mentioned the survivors and what they'd been through, she was quick to change her mind and actually decide, oh, hang on, this isn't a hoax. Um, and, I, and I think that tells us that these views aren't so deeply held as we might think, and, and that's actually quite encouraging. Uh, well, what do we say to that? I think it would be wonderful if Mariana Spring would start paying attention to vaccine-injured uh, people and hear what they have to say. So we'll see whether she takes up your invitation, uh, Debbie. I have a feeling that probably she won't. No. Okay. We are going to leave it there. We'll say to our audience, thank you very much for joining us wherever you are in the world. And thank you very much to everybody that's giving us uh, full support. If you fancy buying somebody a membership, we will be extremely grateful because this is helping us to expand and get greater news content out to the UK and overseas. We'll end it there. Alex, Debbie, thank you very much for joining us. We will be back for extra time in a few moments.